Yeah, Nolan? Two twins. Twins and an album. It's so nice to talk to you today. Yeah, 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 yeah. Shot out of a cannon today, baby. I do like all the different uh lyrics that you apply to the theme song i think it's great you know, well, you, I re- a remix the redux if you will well i really i think through these things in advance you know i, I come into <laughs> this with a plan a game plan you know i just uh, uh hopefully some people tuned in but i was a guest on the middle-aged men podcast last yes, week. you you did very well i must well, say well thank you and uh just do a little, you know, cross potting here, if you will, trans potting, as I called it. We were talking about various aspects of the podcast, and uh, it was interesting to just hear other people's routines and setups. And I, I had to really convince them. It's like we actually really don't prep. I mean, we don't practice. We've never done a rehearsal. We should. And we we should, should prep. Yeah. But I was thinking about that. Certainly, when I host an episode, the only part of the episode where I'm really nervous is not the right word, but where I just literally like, I'm not entirely sure what I'm doing is like the first 10 seconds. Like, <laughs> yeah. how am I gonna, what am I going to say this week? And we both have our, our own little ways of opening the show, but it, it was interesting to talk through that. Like, like what, what's your process nubs? I, I don't know. N- nothing. You know, <laughs> we just sort of pick an album and talk. And, uh, but yeah, I do want to give a quick shout out to those guys, the middle aged men podcast. Everyone should tune into that. To, very entertaining pod, if you will. In fact, they fit us right in between the vasectomy episode and the Peloton episode. So, you know, that's great. Oh, boy. And, and when is the premature ejaculation episode? Is that it next after that? or It's got to be sometime in the next few episodes for sure. Okay. Well, yeah, I, exactly. I definitely want to tune into that one. But no, you're right. Those guys are great. And thanks again for having Nubs on. And Nubs, I mean, what would you say? Um, I guess my little intro ditty. You know, what, what genre would you say that is? What, if you had to give that a category, musical category, what would you say? Besides crap, um, what, what genre would you sort of place that under if you had to pick one? Uh, I, fabulous. Um, the genre, you know, awesome. Yeah, I guess. Know, well, that'll like work. That. We'll, we'll just create a new genre. Here's why I ask. I think that uh, part of what's going to be fun and part of why tonight's album was a sort of interesting choice and one that actually had on the docket for some time and sort of finally getting around to it is that you just cannot categorize this. I dare you nubs to try to categorize this in some fashion. Now there are probably several different uh, styles and genres that tonight's album touches throughout. In fact, I know there are several. And it's part of what I really love about it. Part of what's really cool about this band and part of what was really landmark and interesting about this record that came out at a time where things were very formulaic. You know, you kind of knew what would sell, you knew what would 
hit and this band could have done whatever it wanted. They were that talented, but they pushed the boundaries, got clever, got creative and went a little wild to the point where you really can't put a category on it. I think uh, hopefully it'll, it'll be a fun one to talk about tonight. What do you say, Nub? You can put a category on it, but you'll be wrong. And, and many made that mistake. You know, with Faith No More, they said, oh, it's funk rock. And it's like, oh, it's not. Like, you know, it's like Red Hot Chili Peppers. Well, not really, you know. Or they say, oh, it's metal. Well, you know, it's certainly not metal. I mean, you can't really put it in that category. And, you know, punk and all sorts of other ideas. But uh, anyone who ever tried to classify this band, particularly after Mike Patton joined, is, is just going to be wrong. So we won't focus tonight, hopefully, as much on the classification as the quality, right? Because uh, it's a lot easier to deem this album's quality than it is to sort of corner it into uh, some sort of genre or style. So, yeah, it's a good choice, man. I'm looking forward to it. And we have had this one on the docket for a while. So good check of the box here, T. Well, Spanks, Spanks a lot. But before we get to the album, let's get to some other albums that have been spinning in your turn table. Nubs, let's go round and round. Three albums that you have been absorbing. Nubs, what do you got, buddy? We've talked before about how I like certain phases of artists when they're not with their normal band. So a good, the example we use is Tom Petty. You know, I, I prefer the Tom Petty albums where he's not with the Heartbreakers. I absolutely prefer. Wait a minute. I thought you loved the Heartbreak. You, you said the Heartbreakers are one of the best backing. Bands <laughs> yeah. <all> time, <laughs> Wow. What oh, a, they're terrible. Gosh, what a what change a, of opinion you've had. Like a, like a painfully average backing band, the Heartbreakers. <laughs> and this backing band was not painfully average, but I will say that I prefer, without question, this artist's albums without that backing band, and that would be Bruce Springsteen. So, you know, I would always rather listen to Lucky Town or Human Touch than, you know, some of the core E Street band albums. And one of the other examples of that is Tunnel of Love which is uh, sort of a, a Springsteen album that many hold dear. It's from 1987. And, you know, it's got a, a cool title track. It's got brilliant disguise on it. It's, it's, it's a really, um, I think it's easily one of the more interesting Springsteen albums uh, yeah. to listen to. And I think a lot of it has to do with, it's not the full on E street band. There, there's a couple members of the E street band that contribute, but it's, it's really a Bruce Springsteen solo album. And that gives it a distinctness that uh, that certainly resonates with me. And again, I, I love the other two that he did without them in the 90s as well. So Tunnel of Love is my first one. The next would be um, Chris Squire's Fish Out of Water. And this is one of my favorite albums of all time. It might even be one that we talk about at some point, just because it's, to me, it's one of the best solo albums ever made. And it never gets old. And I kind of dug up some Chris Squire interviews. He actually does a a few years before he died, they did a reissue of it and he did a commentary. So he like literally talked through the whole album top to bottom. And it's like kind of awkward, but kind of amazing. <laughs> and Squire had kind of a good delivery. Yeah. And so um, it, that's all online. You should check it out. But yeah, Chris Squire fish out of water is something that I've been spending some time with of late, of course. And then 
I got, to, I picked up a copy of Jay Maskus from Dinosaur Jr. Had a very short-lived band before Dinosaur Jr. got back together again called Jay Maskus in the Fog. And they did an album called More Light. I recently scored a vinyl copy of that. It's from 2000. And it sounds more like Dino Jr. than a lot of Jay Maskus solo stuff. It's a little more rocking. And um, it's a really good album. It, it's, if you're into Dino Jr., it's, it should be part of that canon for sure. And he did one other album with the Fog. But More Light was the first one, and it, and it kind of stands out. It's, it's very Dino Junior-esque, and it's got Jay Maskus with his typical sleepy vocal delivery, but kind of loud, blaring guitars. And cool <laughs> loud is right. I, I'm going to sound like an old geese right now, but when we went and saw Jane's Addiction doing the Ritual Tour, which we talked about on a previous episode, and uh, was, it, was it Living Color in Dino Junior? I think that opened. Is that right? Yeah, it was. That yeah. that was the lineup. Yeah, I swear, Dinosaur Junior is. This was outdoors, an outdoor pavilion. It was the loudest show I've ever been. I mean, it was so loud you you could hardly enjoy it. You couldn't even hear Jay Maskus sing. I mean, it was cool. I mean, it was so cool to see them. I don't, I don't know if I had actually ever seen them before. Maybe at a festival back in the day or something. But God, they were loud. I mean, too like blaringly too loud if i may sound like an old man for a sec and he only tours now if i have it right with the lou barlow murph lineup so that original you know which was awesome i mean it was awesome to see the three of those guys up there but really cool and that that's the only lineup i've ever seen the other show that i saw that lineup at was in detroit and it was equally loud in a smaller room and so you're right, man, that, that they are notoriously loud. I mean, the, the bass guitar and the kick drum and, and Jay's guitar was just thundering. I, I think it's to cover up his vocals. I, I, that's my theory. Cause you, you really could hardly hear his voice at all. They, just they were covering up everything. I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. everything they were covering up my, my thoughts. I mean, I, I, <laughs> yeah, <it's>, yeah. <laughs> maybe that's good. I don't know. All right. See what, uh, what's spinning around for you, man? What do you got? Well, I'm going to start off with something kind of hefty here, something you helped get me into. Actually, this is Between the Buried and Me and their record, Alaska. This is the heavy stuff. This is not for the faint of heart, but uh, man, it's good. You know, a lot of nice uh, kind of bounce to a lot of the things they were doing on this one. Um, you know, really good performances all around. It's, it's a great record from those guys. The second is uh, by the band Jet, outstanding band out of Australia. All three records they put out were really good. And this one is actually their last, which was called Shaka Rock. Um, some good stuff on there. I think all three of the records they put out were all very, very good. I thought they were a great band. Got to see them live as well. Um, opening for Oasis. Oasis. Thank you. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, great record there by Jet. Uh, the one before it Shine On was awesome, too. And then third is by uh, our main man, Mark Slaughter. But this is the Reach for the Sky record. Not that great. You know, I mean, obviously the, the previous album, uh, you know, with um, Up All Night and Fly to the Angels and kind of classic. Stick it to ya. Stick it to, stick it to ya. It was, was a much better record than Reach for the Sky. But I wanted to go back and kind of see. It's not bad. There's some decent stuff. But I feel like uh, old Mark Slaughter may have... Uh, kind of front loaded all the great stuff on that first record. Cause the second, the material was lacking a little bit, but uh, still good to go back and revisit the old slaughter stuff. I just, I don't think I've ever been prouder of you to hear you 
uh, dropping between the buried and me on a round and round. I mean, that's yeah. great. That, that's a band I always thought you would like, you know, for those of you, you probably get the vibe listening to us so far that T and I get like a, an abnormal amount of pleasure when we introduce each other to a band. It's like, that's like makes my year. If I can actually get T to, to take a pause from all the stuff he's listening to on his own and take a recommendation. And, and obviously if he likes it, that's a huge added bonus. So yeah, between the buried and me is a cool band, progressive metal and the Alaska album is really good, but um, you know, the last few they've put out have been excellent as well. So I'm glad to see you into those guys. So that's what's round and round for me. Nubs. Um, I'm sure you did a little research prior to this episode, but I'm going to ask you for, you know, full, full honesty here. If you would, before you started doing research for this particular episode, and granted, we've known about Faith No More for a long time, and obviously the record we're going to talk about tonight is in many ways was kind of during our musical heyday. But if before doing homework, you were to guess what year Faith No More formed, what would you have guessed? I, I'm still not entirely sure of the exact date, but I, I would have guessed 1984. Um, I know it, it's, it's like early to mid 80s. Because they did, you know, two or three albums with Chuck Mosley before they did anything with Mike Patton. So, I, okay. So, what do you think, like a normal person would guess? Oh, yeah. normal person easily <laughs> would guess 1990. Yeah. I, so, but even before this, I would have guessed late 80s. Faith No More was formed in 1979. And let me ask you this question. This is also something I didn't know. And, and maybe you came across it. What famous or infamous singer was a member of Faith No More, lead singer, for six months in the early 80s? Who was it? That I don't know. Really? I've never come across that. No. So I didn't know this either. But in 1983, Courtney Love sang for Faith No More and was in the band for six months. Really? It's true. Yeah. There, oh. there's actually a performance or two uh that are on the old YouTube if you want to check it out. Um, of her singing with the band, which I, I had no idea. So I think most people would be very surprised to learn that this band started as long ago as they did. Certainly would be surprised to learn that Courtney Love <laughs> was a member of this band for a short period of time. And it it just shows that these guys even before tonight's album angel dust go back a long way you know there have been members that have come and gone and obviously we'll talk through it but these guys go back a bit a lot of people think that it was really interesting and and clever what they came up with here in the height of the grunge era and coming off of an album with a top 40 legit top 40 single on it but if you really look through their history, you know, it's not terribly surprising that by this point they were ready to do something different. And they had already decided creatively, you know, that they weren't going to spend their career as Faith No More sort of jumping on any fads or jumping on any bandwagons for success. And that's part of what will be fun to talk through tonight. Nubs, is this a prog album? No, I, it's, it's progressive, right? In its approach. It, it's 
It's daring. It takes a ton of chances. It doesn't follow any formula within an album, let alone a song, right? So it jumps around, it navigates through a bunch of different ideas, but to call this prog would be kind of a stretch. And I'm, I bet you Mike Patton would yell at us if we called it prog, right? I think if you called it anything, you would be pissed <laughs> off, you know? As long as you said it didn't sound like anything that existed before, you know, he'd be okay. But um, yeah, I, it's, I've thought about that. And I thought about that actually yesterday when I was listening to it again. It, prog is an all-encompassing term for anything that's different and daring. So I get that. But no, I, I don't think it, it stretches enough to get there. But high-level musicianship, strong presence of keyboards, which gave it a huge you know, kind of uniqueness against its peers and certainly an adventurous musical approach that, that gives it, you know, kind of the, some of the theatrical, like cinematic feel of prog, but no, I, I think calling it prog would be tough. That'd be a stretch. Well, I think you're right that, uh, uh, Patton and probably a couple others in the band didn't want this to be genre, didn't want this to be categorized. And we are going to talk through why. Let's start with them nerd deeds. Yeah, done dirt cheap. Oh, nerd. You want some dirty deeds? Yeah. You want some dirty deeds? Angel Dust was released on June 8th, 1992. It was Faith No More's fourth album and the follow up to their record, The Real Thing. Now, The Real Thing featured the song Epic, which everybody knows, and has a Layla esque piano outro this is just absolutely incredible a song that kind of was ahead of its time i mean shoot this was even what did that come out in 90 1990 1989 yeah I the mean, real thing came out in 90 i think i mean geez that's a <laughs> that's a hell of a song and there are great moments on that record uh falling to pieces one of my favorite faith no more songs ever but what happened here is is mike Patton uh joined the band really just prior to the recording of the real thing and was essentially a hired singer, right? I mean, the band had written all the material. I think they had even recorded a lot of the material and they basically were like, shoot, we need a singer. Chuck Mosley was with the band for the previous two records and kind of a, a change made there and brought in Mike Patton and basically said, we've got all the songs. We just need you to sing them. And that was kind of the way the real thing came together. Well, after the success of Epic and the success of that record, and it was very successful, led by that single, you know, Mike Patton really dug into the creative process, which he really hadn't been a part of before. And boy, can you hear it? Because any, anyone who knows anything about Mike Patton, who is a classically trained operatic singer with ridiculous range ridiculous talent. I mean, the guy's a like a Broadway powerhouse vocalist. I mean, he's really pretty incredible, but does not take his vocal talents or stylings seriously in any way whatsoever. Likes to sing in different uh, styles, different genres, different approaches, different languages, different I mean, languages. One of his most, you know, heralded works in the last few years is he did an entire album of Italian pop songs. Yeah. And you know it's it's amazing. I mean yeah. just to hear him sing uh with that range and that power. And so yeah, he's he's very unabashed. He doesn't follow any rules. He's unabashed. He's very tongue in cheek. I mean, you you know, the, this guy 
on this record and in every project musically he's ever done, he never loses his sense of humor. All you got to do is watch a few interviews with him and realize that guy's hysterical. Um, and he performs that way. You know, I, I think he, I think he takes the artistic approach to music seriously, but, but he does not take his vocal styles or vocal approaches seriously, um, which makes for a very interesting dichotomy. And boy, do these guys have great dichotomy all over this record and we'll discuss it. So, you know, Patton contributing creatively and more toward the songwriting led to this desire for kind of a more theatrical sound. And he was able to kind of get the rest of the members of the band on board with this, except for one, which we'll talk about. And, you know, he had a a band that he formed in high school called Mr. Bungle. And during this transition between the real thing and angel dust, he actually recorded a debut album with that band. And it gave Faith No More kind of an opportunity to say, hey, we, we want to incorporate this guy into the creative process, which we haven't done previously. And let's see where this goes. And they kind of scrapped, you know, the, the idea that they had previously for the record, which probably was going to be more of a continuation of the sound like the real thing and went for this basically no rules, you know, more theatrical approach with Angel Dust. The member who probably fought against this the most is my main man, Big Jim Martin, the guitar player. Now, a lot of people probably remember him for the long, crazy hair, the the facial hair and the red rimmed glasses. You know, he kind of had this trademark look and, you know, he was in the band since the early 80s and I think always wanted to air the band on the side of more of a metal direction and a guitar driven direction. And you can see why, because Jim Martin nubs to this day, um, threw off some of the best guitar tone I've ever heard. It's one of my favorite guitar tones in the history of music. And it's all over this record, which is great. It's all over the real thing, which is great, but you can tell, you know, that he wanted things to be a little bit more guitar driven and some of this direction on angel dust sort of bothered him. Uh, and he actually ended up leaving the band about a year after the album's release. He didn't like the new direction. He didn't like the album title, but one of the things he really did like was the live performance. He, he spoke specifically about angel dust saying, I really like the way these songs come off live, but I think he felt like the studio treatment was a little bit overproduced. And, you know, he just wasn't really kind of feeling the creative direction. He was, this is so nineties. He was fired from the band via fax, via fax machine, uh, in, in 1990, that's kind of a bogue way to fire a guy from a band, isn't it? But you know, uh, so via fax machine, he was fired about a year after angel dust came out. He was offered to join the faith no more reunion in 2009, which we'll touch on a little bit later and declined. So it seemed like the type of thing he wanted to move on from the, the band, but nub that guitar tone, that crunchy high gain thing. What do you think? There is something about the way that man plays guitar. There just is. And it has an impact on this album. And Faith No More was never really the same afterwards. Now, there was something about the combination of Jim Martin, who did have this metal kind of thing. And he played with this big crunch and lots of palm muting. And I mean, fantastic guitarist always played uh gibson flying v's yeah he looked great with that real thin tone out of him yeah and he looked awesome while he played you know um so there was something about the marriage between 
all of this eccentric stuff going on with Roddy Bottom and Billy Gould. And of course, the puff, Mike Borden on drums, who I still think hits the drums harder than anybody else in the known universe. <laughs> he does. And then you've got this really creative out there vocalist who's doing like all these different things with his voice. Jim Martin was almost like the driving force with that, you know, thick, crunchy guitar thing going on. And when he left, there was a lot of aspects of the sound that left that weren't as appealing for me, at least uh, in the studio. So there's a series of remarkable interviews that everyone should watch. That's into faith. No more MTV was doing kind of an in the studio thing with faith. No more. Cause you know, Epic was this huge hit. And there's interviews of an endless interview with Patton. You know, it's like seven or eight parts. And he's sort of casual. You know, he's eating a sandwich and rambling about it's, all of It's not a sandwich. It's the most giant sandwich you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he takes like 18 bites of it and it's only like halfway gone. I mean, and it's it, just yeah. a giant and, sandwich. And he's very flippant through the interview because the interviewer clearly didn't have a clue about the band. And, you know, MTV sent some intern, it sounded like, to talk to them. Yeah, but totally. There's also sit downs with Borden, who's, who's a very bright kind of guy, you know, good perspective on the band, talkative. And then, you know, this interviewer sits down with Jim Martin for a half hour or something. And it, you can just hear the fact that the band is not going well. And, you know, Patton's ripping on Jim Martin when he's not in the room and Jim Martin's talking about how he can't find any place for his guitar. I mean, it was very obvious this was yeah. not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. But it worked so well on this album. Right. So, you know, it, it, it's a fascinating story, but Jim Martin was essentially elbowed out of the group, you know, and I think that he was unhappy. He probably played a little bit unhappy. Patton was taking more and more control of the band creatively. And so, you know, probably in terms of the longevity of the band, it was, it was good that Jim Martin left, but that's the only positive thing I'll say about it. Cause you know, the, the golden age of this group far and away is with Jim Martin and, and the fact that he didn't want to participate in the reunion tour says a lot, but I don't, I don't get the vibe. It was contentious. I just think he like, didn't want to go there. You know, it's like, he didn't really want to look back and become part of that again. So it, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like an awful disbanding or anything, but Clearly it was two different directions. And, um, you know, have you ever heard Jim Martin did a solo album like a couple of years later? I saw that. I, I haven't heard it. Is it any good? I think it's really good. I love oh, good. it. Okay. It's, it's really heavy and his vocals are kind of interesting. And James Hetfield sings back up on it. And I think sings back up on like every song. So, you know, you've got like this Jim Martin stuff going along and then I don't know where you just get Hetfield, which is like, yeah, you know, doing like the trademark Hetfield backup vocal. <laughs> right. I'm like every song. So he's good buddies with the guys from Metallica. In fact, I think that had a lot to do with them touring with Metallica and Guns N' Roses back in that crazy, insane tour in 92, the one that's documented on a year and a half in the life of, which we've talked about here before on the old podcast here. Um, it, Jim Martin was really good friends with Cliff Burton the bass player for Metallica. In fact, they played together in that band spastic children, which is kind of that free form. It was like an all-star band with all those Northern California musicians. Metallica was a San Francisco band as was faith. No more as is faith. No more. Um, so, you know, a lot of kind of synergies there. You mentioned uh, Mike Borden. So we'll kind of go to him next to this day nubs. So uh, we've seen him drum with faith. No more, obviously. And uh, the other time I saw him drum was with Ozzy 
and he, he toured with Ozzy for several years. And it's the only time I've seen a drummer break a cymbal during a show. He actually broke it's kind of a medium-sized crash to his left because he, you know, he just swipes those cymbals just like a maniac. And I actually saw him break a cymbal. The drum tech had to come over and replace it during the song. Um, I had never seen that before. So it's interesting. You mentioned how hard he hit cause he was a real wild man back there, but you know, that left-handed style, very unique style, um, pretty athletic, not always smooth, you know, pretty sloppy, but in a way that kind of works and in a way that provides, uh, uh, interesting and, and certainly entertaining to watch type of drum sound. In addition, you had the longtime members, Billy Gould, um, who was the uh, bassist, and then Roddy Bottom, an incredibly important part of Faith No More. Um, he actually came up with the album title for Angel Dust. Um, it was not necessarily a drug reference, but artistically, they were really exploring the dichotomy between kind of beauty and insanity. And it's evident from... Uh, a title like Angel Dust, Roddy said he came up with that because it just sounds so pretty on its face. But then it's also the name of this like really horrible drug. So continued dichotomy in a very important place. And, and I got to say, Nubs, this is hands down one of my favorite album covers of all time, of all time. I have a poster of it framed in my basement right by the pool table. I don't know what it is. I mean, it's a, it's a picture of a great white heron with sort of blue airbrush background. There's just something so eye-catching, so gorgeous. And I got to say too, Nub, I've always been partial to the sideways parental advisory symbol. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. For some reason, whenever that was sideways, I always dug it, you know? And I loved albums with the parental advisory. I mean, it's, it's like... It, Tipper Gore blew it because that just made me want to buy it so much more. I thought it was so cool, you know. Exactly. But it is a, just a, an absolutely outstanding album cover. And what's really interesting about it, continued idea of dichotomy, is on the front you have this beautiful picture of this great white heron. And then in the back, you got a bunch of meat hooks with uh, a bunch of like like giant slabs of raw meat hanging from them. And on, on one of them, they even took the liberty of putting a cow head onto one of them just to kind of make it even more sort of gross. So again, you have this beautiful cover and you have this insane back cover and the two things couldn't be much more different, but this is what they were going for creatively. This madness of beauty and rationality musically and lyrically that could be combined with this insanity and oftentimes irrationality musically and lyrically and the combining of those two things and making it work is some of this sort of theatrical approach you could really tell that they were going for and it, and it really works i think you used a perfect word for these guys when you said the word bright all of these guys are very intelligent and you know Patton could be f funny and flippant and Big Jim could be a little mopey at times you could tell during these sessions and Roddy could be a little quiet and but but you listen to all these guys and you realize there's a lot of intelligence here, which is what turns something like Angel Dust from something that could have been chaotic and disorganized into something that in a wacky, crazy, nonlinear way still has a lot of direction and still makes a lot of sense at the end of the day. 
A couple other notes on the album. They did a cover of Lionel Richie's Easy, which didn't make the album. Uh, They instead opted for the closing track cover of the theme from Midnight Cowboy, which is kind of funny. Um, But Easy was a B-side and um, actually became a pretty popular track for the band during their reunion tour and during their tour of their most recent uh, album, they played it, you know, so it's one of those songs that I think all the fans really enjoyed. And, and I think Patton himself has said that it's a favorite. I mean, it's not like a joke. It's not like a goofy make fun of it cover. They think it's a song that they really love, you know, and, uh, and the influences on these guys are always kind of interesting, but the, the cover of easy was an interesting deal. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to (laughs) mention the cover to the single. The single, <laughs> the maxi the CD, single, the maxi single cover with the, uh, what is it? Two, uh, two, uh, two rhinoceroses uh, elks. Make, making love. I think is what it is. I think it's, it's like, where's it elk? I don't, whatever like it is. Two large animals, uh, fornicating on the, <laughs> on the cover. It's, uh, like this sunset background. Yeah. yeah. It, it rules. I mean, and again, you know, these guys are just constantly doing things to, to kind of balance out, you know, the beautiful with the chaotic and the seriousness with the hilarity. And I mean, that's kind of what these guys were, were always up to. So nub, I am very interested in hearing about how you got into these guys. If you stayed into these guys, uh, what you, what initially drew you in all that wonderful stuff that we cover when we do the wonder stories. All right, Nubs, take us back to 1992, or even before, if that's when you got into these guys, and tell us what drew you in to the boys from Faith No More. The obvious answer for most would be epic, but it's actually not true, at least in my case. I mean, retroactively, you kind of went back and realized, oh, that song with the piano ending is Faith No More, and da-da-da. But this is one of those, and we've talked about it before on the podcast, one of those uh, older brother Scott bands, you know, or snots as we would call him. It, so Scotty got into these guys, I think through his, his deeper interest in metal, we were listening to a lot of Metallica, a lot of Megadeth count to extinction. 1991, 92 was a pretty amazing year. Sure metal, was. Not, not grunge, like not Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, but Metallica and Megadeth, Faith No More, like things that were more in the metal world incredible year you've got metallica's black album you've got countdown to extinction and then allison chain's dirt came out in 92 yep absolutely and like you know at that time you, that would have been more in in that world than grunge right looking back they're sort of cornered into did the use your illusion records come out in 92 or was that the year prior 91 yeah okay yeah so use your illusion i mean it, this was a pretty extraordinary time for hard rock metal things like that and so yeah. but Scotty used to he bought angel dust and he used to listen to midlife crisis all the time and i remember you know as a kid what stood out was just that i I thought he said you're menstruating hard in the lyric because i'm not a big lyric guy and i don't pay much attention and i you know i was 12 he says heart right yeah he's okay okay that's what i always thought okay but i said he's menstruating hard for years and uh you know i was 12 so like had just sort of somewhat recently understood like menstruation and what that's all about. Right. So I was like, 
Oh, Wait, you like, understand that? Yeah. yeah. Can you explain it to me? Yeah, exactly. Right. And so, um, but that song was so powerful and that lyric was, you know, kind of caught my ear, but the middle section, do, 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 boo, boo, you know, the whole sampling and everything. And so we'll talk about, talk about that more when we get into track by track, but there was just a, a, the sound of the album was so fresh and so different and so well produced, you know? And so that, that kind of hooked me and then faith no more became a thing. And certainly them jumping on the, the sort of ill-fated Metallica guns and roses tour was a big deal. We, we didn't go to that tour, unfortunately, but would have loved to. And that gave faith no more some good name recognition and notoriety. And then they went on to become a little bit more of a, a obscure might be the wrong word, but a little more of an underground thing. You know, the, the ensuing albums after angel dust didn't do quite as well. And they didn't have, big hits or anything like that. And then eventually the group broke up. So we had an amazing, as we've talked about on the old podcast here before we, we had a, you know, a ridiculously cool mom that took us to shows and let us go to shows. And I mean, just so cool. So fortunate that we had that kind of upbringing for the Metallica guns and roses faith, no more show. I remember we kind of brought it up, kind of threw it out there to see. And, and even our amazing, cool musical mom was like, hell no, <laughs> you know, like there's yeah, no yeah. freaking way you guys are going to that show and probably, uh, probably a smart move. There ended up being some, some challenges on that tour. I believe, uh, if, if by uh, challenges, you mean riots and yeah. And, and, you know, helped by some of W Axel Rose's antics, but yeah, that was like one of the very, very rare instances where, uh, even our cool concert musical mom was like, uh-uh. A- average end time to the show was like 2.30 a.m. Because Guns N' Roses had to play last. So and so after Metallica set, there was like a two and a half hour wait for Guns N' Roses all the time. If, it's just if Guns N' Roses came out at all. Yeah, right. right yeah. Exactly. So yeah, that, that's that's my wonder story. It's really a, it's a Scotty band and Midlife Crisis was vital. Then eventually went back and discovered the real thing as an album and a, a deeper appreciation for Epic, which, which is a, you know, it's a truly incredible song. I mean, it, it is one of the best rock songs of the nineties easily. And, uh, you know, and, and then you could later in life, you get a little, little bit more into Mike Patton and you learn more about the, the story there and kind of all the things he's done. And he's a pretty fascinating figure just on his own. So, and then you and I both went to the reunion show a few years back in Detroit when they were touring Saul Invictus and, Mm-hmm. You know, it was so good to see them. I, mean, oh, yeah. I don't think either one of us had seen Faith No More live at all. And and they were great. They were magnificent. They were, you know, it, it was yeah. the, the presentation was really cool. And the band clearly still has fun doing what they're doing, all with a, a certain amount of humor and, and satire to some of their antics. So it was yeah, that, really yeah. it was really thrilling when they reunited. You know, it was it was a band where it was just like wow, this is going to be awesome. And, and it was a great recording. Hopefully they put out more records because Saul Invictus was really good, but you're right. Going to see them on that tour together was really awesome. And really, it's a band that you were just really, really happy, you know, found a way to reunite and get it together. For sure, man. So, um, so yeah, you're probably a bigger fan through the years than I was. So let's hear your wonder story to you. How'd you, how'd you get into these guys? Well, a couple of things. I mean, I'm midlife crisis, which we'll get to in the track by track. I mean, you talk about like a maybe top 10 song for me of all time. One of those songs I could listen to multiple times a day and I will never get sick of it ever. I mean, never it's, it's that 
important, you know, to me. And it's that um, special, in my opinion, of a track. It was one of those, you know, there there have only been really a couple handfuls of songs where you remember exactly where you were when you heard it and you remember the way it felt. And I remember where I was, was at our childhood house in the music room. And Scotty, you're exactly right. Scotty uh, put this record in. I remember even at that time thinking the album cover was really cool and that the parental advisory sticker was even cooler. And he played Midlife Crisis and I just, it was like getting punched in the stomach in a wonderful way. It was like, wow, I mean, this is something. And I just wanted to listen to it. It was kind of like Alice in Chains Wood was another one around that time. I just wanted to listen to it all day, you know? And, and, you know, it took me a while to kind of get into the album because, you know, we were 12 years old. I mean, there's some pretty complicated stuff going on here that isn't always pleasing to the ear. And, and later on, I think I developed a much more of an appreciation for Angel Dust as a work, you know, and, and obviously we'll get to it here. But Midlife Crisis really got me going. Now, Nubs, there's a, there's a definite wonder story here uh, tied to that song in particular. And it has to do with a little something you and I used to call guy's game. And uh, this is where Nubs and I, when we were little, uh, and by little, I mean pretty much from the time we were like three to the time we were like, I don't know, probably like 13. We used to, uh, we had like this barrel full of stuffed animals and we would play full on football games and baseball games and we you know we'd put masking tape on the floor to 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 make it look like a uh, like the yardage on a football field or a baseball field or whatever and we would play full-on games with um our stuffed animals and we called it you know guy's game and at some point we you know we were either mid-season on the sports and you know we got or we got bored with you know playing the same game every time with the same teams and the same players and we decided that you know, a few of our stuffed animals needed to start a band. So we actually created a band. This is so amazing, by the way, because I hadn't thought about this for years, but the fact that you have such clarity about it. And we should, we should tell people, Guy's game was unbelievably detailed. Oh, yeah. You know, every player had a first and last name. Mm-hmm. They, we put that on their back. Um, they, they each kind of had a story and a personality. Oh, yeah. And... and the football was a rolled up sock. Yep. Always yeah. a rolled up sock. And we would do actual radio. We would hit record on our little tape player. Yeah. You know, Walkman, boombox, whatever. And we would actually do a, like a radio broadcast while we were playing, we would announce, you know, the games and, uh, and then, you know, we'd listen back and, you know, break down the film and do all that stuff. But, but yeah, we, we got bored with the sports and we decided that, you know, some of our stuffed animals, especially our favorites, needed to form a band. And so uh, we created a band and we would then do concerts with our stuffed animals. And um, the song that would, that would be performed because it just was like rocking and we would like just go all out was faith. No more's midlife crisis. <laughs> so if you can imagine us two dumbasses, you know, playing drums and guitars and performing with a bunch of stuffed animals uh, at age 12, cause you know, Hey, we're a little screwed up. We still played with stuffed animals at 12, but you know, we own it. Um, I have no shame in that too. No, not at all. Let's be and honest. I'm, you still sleep with the champ bear. Of course. Your oversized sure, care bear. And I, I sure do. Not, you know, I sure thing, do. That thing's, yeah. uh, that thing's really nice. That, that poor, that poor bear. 
has just got, <laughs> yeah. had me rub all over him for the last 30 years. Not, <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. It's not a fun job. I'll tell you. But, um, so, so I always remember, <laughs> I always remember that too. When, uh, when I hear Mid- midlife crisis just is one of those songs. It's just a very special song for me. Now I've completely ruined the track by track, uh, at least when we get to that one. But, uh, but yeah, that was certainly the entry point for me. I credit uh, Snots a lot for that. Thank you if you're listening, buddy. And uh, he doesn't listen to us. He doesn't care. Yeah, I think he doesn't either. <laughs> yeah. And and uh, obviously, uh, you know, turning our guys' game uh, sports figures into a band and having uh, Midlife Crisis be their hit song is a, <laughs> is a definite memory for us. So, hey, with that said, uh, Nubs. I think it's time to go track by track. What do you say there, bud? I think we should drop that needle, T. Let's do this. It comes out hot, uh, as you'd expect, with really the first three tracks. And Nubs, one of the things I'm going to do, I think one of the things that's funny and interesting about this is uh, they went into the studio with pretty much all these songs, but two completed. And they had working titles for each of these songs. And they're kind of interesting and in some cases kind of funny. So uh, I'm going to, after playing each clip, I'm going to tell you what the working title was for each song. because. Uh, you know, they, they often still to this day refer to some of these songs in their set lists and whatnot uh, by their working titles. So obviously uh, they must have been kind of fond of some of the ways they referred to these songs. But we kick things off here with a pretty blazing track one with Land of Sunshine. got that groove you got that guitar and bass working together you got these differing sort of time signatures um the working title for this one was the funk song which obviously the bass line is very much in that realm but they they come out pretty hot here with a song that's got a lot of uniqueness um but is probably a little bit more straightforward musically in a lot of ways with a lot of stuff ringing out and a lot of stuff kind of offering space. The keyboard is so important to this band. It really was what distinguished them in a number of ways. Now, of course, so was Mike Patton's voice and Mike Borden's drums and Jim Martin's guitar. I mean, these were all key elements, but the keyboard really rises to the top here. And it's, it's a sound to that resembles you know, one of the most famous instruments in prog rock history and in music history. And that's the Mellotron. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that sound that Roddy Bottom is getting from his keyboard is sort of a nineties replica version of a Mellotron. It's fake strings. Mellotron is one of the earliest synthesizers and it, it worked with tapes and you know, Mellotron is most famous actually not for some of the prog rock stuff that it became very beloved from, but actually from the song Freebird by Leonard Skinner. I mean, the, the, during the verses, before the blistering guitar solo that those strings you hear in the background, that's Mellotron. And so Roddy Bottom is sort of recreating this modern version of that. And, th- and that keyboard string sound is all over this album. And it's almost in every song seemingly. And so 
you know, I, I don't know if that's a throwback to a Mellotron sound or if, if Roddy Bottom was trying to invent something a little bit new, but regardless, it, it's a very, very unique keyboard sound to pair with anything that resembles hard rock or heavy metal music. And so again, you, like you mentioned at the top, you've just got this smorgasbord of sound that is so all over the place, but this song does it in a cohesive way from a composition perspective. And maybe one of the only things on the album that does it, maybe there's one or other example later. It's a good opener. It's captivating. It's adventurous. It takes you on this journey. And Patton is immediately showing off his range. No doubt. And he, and he's doing all sorts of things. Do you think we should do an entire episode on Freebird? You know what? I, I, would, I thought it's funny. You and I are always thinking about the same thing. I, I thought the other day, should we do an episode at some point just to mix it up on one song? On a song. Yeah. You know? And if we did, I would love to do Freebird. And mm. Freebird has become such a sort of, um, I hate to say joke. I don't I never want to say that about such a, it's such an important and truly, truly great song. Yeah. But it maybe Freebird deserves an actual real musical look because it's become such a punchline, you know? Yeah. And, and really looking at just how, incredible of a song it is it's amazing you know? I mean, it's, it's freaking so amazing incredible yeah, there's so many like great live performances of it and oh well here's another uh heater uh, uh track two uh in in this one boy it, it hits you over the head uh land of sunshine has a lot of musicality to it to your point nubs i agree on the keyboards i mean that hazy keyboard sound that that roddy's getting that's such a big part of this record it just complements all the other stuff taking place so well. Hearing that guitar tone and that hazy keyboard tone is just so good. And you get plenty of that here on Bit of a Rocker here with Caffeine. It's just like impossible um, to like not like, I mean, I was just, I was just almost like out of my chair just now. It's like, <laughs> how do you, how do you listen to caffeine without just like, just basically like it affecting your entire body? You know, certainly, uh, I mean, it's a real heater that then goes into a breakdown that then gets back to a heater. It's all in six, eight. Um, in fact, the working title of this one is called Triplet. Um, so you could tell, you know, musically that they were going for something that vibes a little bit differently. I mean, remember, this is before Tool got real crazy with time signatures and, you know, this sort of metal mixed with um, something that comes off as a waltz was unique at the time. And I think Caffeine, while being a, a very straightforward kind of rocker, has a lot of kind of unique timing stuff and and musicality stuff taking place. I really love this track. Yeah, it kind of shifts from 6-8 to almost like 3-8 at certain times. I mean, it's a very unique time signature for a rock song. And and again, Jim Martin's guitar. You know, he he claims that he oh, had a hard totally. time finding spots for his guitar. Well, Caffeine's not one of those songs. I mean, he is really driving things here. And it's yeah. it's a perfect song for his style. And this is where, again, it's such a bummer that things didn't work out with him because for Faith No More pressing on. This combination of his 
thick, crunchy guitars with, you know, these keyboards and some of the other melodic things and some of the like genre list things they were doing it. It really could have been a true creative match made in heaven. And instead it turned into, you know, kind of disjointed relationships among the band. But this is an example where it, it's all really working and Jim Martin's really shining for sure. Well, I hope we didn't spoil the party too hard, but track three, a special one, Midlife Crisis. I mean, even right now, like right the second, it's just like, it's just like shit. Like, I mean, <laughs> come on. Um, I mean, the first thing that you really have to look at is just how exceptional the production is on the song. Oh, no question. You can pick out everything within that mix. I mean, the, the mixing of this album is so fantastic, you know? You really can pick out the different personalities of the guys in the band. And so this song is well recorded. The, the performances were top notch and the mixing is just dead letter perfect. And the parts of it all work together so well. That middle with the sample and then the, the bit you just played, great job as always, Maestro, you know, sets up this emotional re-entrance. And then that whole last chorus, when you've got the, the rotating vocals, you know, that yeah. are complementing each yeah. other. Yep. In the different voices of Mike Patton. And, well, it's actually yeah. the pre-chorus being sung underneath the chorus itself. And it is just a wonderful mixture of those two parts. It is. It, it's the, the whole construction of the piece is just perfection. And, and it's also, you know, and Fit No More was not always um, emotional in their music. They, they, were, they were doing so many different things to keep you kind of honest as a listener that sometimes it lost its edge. I mean, this song makes you want to go run really fast or, you know, <laughs> something like that. It just, it's an injection of energy. Yeah. And it's like a lot of things we've talked about with, you know, the accidental commercial appeal, you know, it, it, this song is not like overtly commercial by any means, but because it's just so good, it has an appeal, you know, and it had radio potential. And it had this idea where you listen to, you're like, I need that record. Like I, I yeah. can't go five more minutes without owning this particular album. And, and so I, I love the pureness of its commercial appeal. So it wasn't a huge hit. It definitely didn't reach epics uh, standard in that way. And nothing fit no more ever did after epic, but it was kind of along that same track of just something that's, that's so different but so well done that it, it, it can connect to people of, of all types and of, of all, you know, tastes. So there are two really critical samples in this song. The first is the clap and drum percussive piece from Cecilia by Simon Garfunkel. So that kind of offbeat clapping and clicking that you're hearing um, throughout that drum groove, which is really, really cool, by the way is actually pulling elements sampled from Cecilia, obviously a very famous Simon and Garfunkel song. The second is, and I, I gotta admit, man, I didn't realize this until fairly recently, 
that that middle section, which is so good, and you've mentioned it a couple times, is actually a Beastie Boys um, sample, a song called Car Thief off of Paul's Boutique. I'm going to give you a second of it because you can kind of hear it. But this was obviously during that that Beastie Boys um, Dust Brothers era, right? Off of Paul's Boutique. And Faith the More basically pulled that and sped it up and, and made it kind of the, the lead blocker of that middle section and really clever usage of a, of a, you know, pretty interesting sample. Um, so, you know, these guys, I mean, listen, they, I really respect their kind of artistic approach to things where it wasn't always about having to come up with the incredible riff or the, uh, incredible lyric or the incredible part. Oftentimes it was, how can we just kind of be creative? How can we be fun? How can we be unique? And I think that's where you saw a lot of kind of cool elements like that dropped into what is a really, really incredible song with Midlife Crisis and one that in a lot of ways defines Angel Dust uh, as a whole. But certainly, um, I mean, listen, you're, you're going through those first three tracks, you know, Land of Sunshine, Caffeine, and Midlife Crisis. That is one hell of a trio to kick off an album from 1992 ahead of its time in many ways with those three tracks. And then we get to a rather unique one, but a certainly a well-known one and a rather beloved one from faith. No more fans. And this is RV. Now, this is the moment for many, I think, where, yeah, you get through those first three heaters and you're like, wow, this is blazing. And then you get to RV and you're like, hmm, this is going to be something different. You know, you realize that this is not going to be linear. This is not going to be consistent and this is not going to be formulaic. They called this one the country western song as the uh, working title. As the working title, it's a very interesting showcase of Patton's vocals. He's being pretty tongue-in-cheeky here, um, but it's a great vocal performance. really shows his deep range, which obviously this guy's got an insane range. It's a nice little break. I actually think it's a pretty good song, um, especially through the chorus, and, and they pick it up a little bit with some heaviness to take you through the middle section that's actually very musical and, and, and performed really well and sung really well. But it definitely was probably the moment where people realize, wow, I've, I've got, you know, uh, eight tracks to go here and I think I'm in for a ride. So what do you think, RV? Could be the song that, that made Jim Martin uh, lose his passion for the project. I really like what he's doing. You know, he's finding a way to interject there, but it's clearly not his normal aesthetic. But uh, I really am, am impressed with the chorus of this song. I really like the direction they take it in and it gives it a little bit of a boost. Aside from that, it, it's a little bit of a tough one to take seriously, but to your point, it's an important album track because it did kind of introduce the world to fit no more, the different band from the previous album and the previous regime. And so, you know, I, I, I like its importance uh, again, genre bending, trying all sorts of different things. Cool chorus, but outside of that, it's it's yeah, it's a little goofy for my taste. It's kind of Frank Zappa esque, 
you know, it reminds me a lot of that. It yeah. reminds me of something that you might hear in the middle of, you know, overnight sensation just out of nowhere. Zappa goes into sort of this country thing or this deep voice deal. And even Patton's voice so- sounds quite a bit like Zappa. So that's kind of the connection I always make when I hear it. And, and like RV, Zappa's sort of a, you know, um, acquired taste that sometimes got it <laughs> extremely brilliantly geniusly right. And other times it's like, why am I listening to this? So <laughs> RV kind of hit strikes that chord. It's a great comparison. And listen, I wouldn't be surprised if they had the same thing in mind as they were putting together a track like that, but things get back jamming here with a really hard driving one coming off of RV and again, continuing to show the, the just eclectic nature of this one. Here's a real jam and smaller and smaller. I think that Borden's drumming on this one is really strong. You know, this is kind of the type of track that gave him some space and let him do his kind of wild thing. And and I like a lot of the pounds that he's putting in. I like a lot of the fills that he's utilizing. It's not overboard, but it's got a lot of power to it. Um, It's a nice track. It does pick up the pace a little bit kind of in the middle with a nice bass. Look, there's a lot of great bass work on this record too. A lot of, times where it gets up tempo and it gets kind of funky you know uh is really kind of driven by gould's bass work but um smaller and smaller coming off of rv i don't know that you can get two uh tracks that go in 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 differing directions uh maybe in the history of music than those two things but i guess that's kind of part of the beauty of what we're plowing through here on angel dust so you you keep using a word that's really important to the description of this album and it's it's an excellent observation that is space you know, the way that this album was recorded allowed for a lot of the instrumentation to, you know, rise up in the mix. I'm not convinced there's one overdub on this album aside from Mike Patton's voice, of which there's a tremendous amount of overdubs. But I don't hear a lot of guitar overdubbing at all. In fact, some tracks are lucky to have one guitar track on it. And I don't hear keyboard overdubs. I think everything's pure performance. So that gives it tons of space and a lot of opportunity to create kind of an airiness to the sound. And that brings out the drums always because the way drums get buried in a mix is too many instruments. And so I agree with you on board and I think it's a terrific performance from him. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's grand, right? It, it, you mentioned earlier, is this a prog album? No, but this song is certainly dancing and flirting a bit with the prog sound rhythmically and in terms of the uh, instrumentation so yeah it's a good track yeah great point on space i mean you know a lot of that those guitar ring outs and the drum ring outs and those keyboard ring outs i mean that's all important and it just gave a track like this uh a lot of empty spots to kind of fill in and boy you know these guys could do that well when they had the opportunity that one uh the working title is the arabian song and this next one mike Patton from day one said that there was just something about this song that sounded like the Carpenters. And that was the uh, working title of this next one, The Carpenters. Uh, but the actual song is called Everything's Ruined. Francis, Francis, Francis. 
really hear the carpenter's part? Uh, maybe you do. Um, I mean, he he thought so, uh, and he he know better than us. But uh, it's a great track. I mean, it's a you know this is one of those that kind of wonder why it wasn't kind of a huge hit. Uh, you know, very radio friendly, very catchy, great vocals, great vocals through the especially through the chorus sections and. I feel like this, I feel like everything's ruined is kind of the moment where you get it all just working together. You know, it's not afraid to be hard driving. It's not afraid to be a little catchy. It's not afraid to be a little friendly to the ear. I love it. I think it's an awesome song that really kind of defines angel dust and sort of pulling together all the positive elements of this one. Towering song. I mean, just like this, like this monolith on the album that just stands tall and Again, very grand. All the musicians are at their best on this one. But again, this is the Billy Gould song to me. I mean, just isolate the baseline. You know, what he's doing is very active, but it's also serving the song perfectly. I mean, these guys could all play so well at their instruments. Every one of them. They were, you know, yeah. you used the word earlier with Mike Borden. They were all kind of athletes at their instrument. They, they had some chops. And they let it fly sometimes. And when they did, it resulted in really memorable moments. And yeah, this is easily one of the best songs on the album for sure. In, in a musician's dream, you know, this song, I would say there's just so much going on in it for sure. Yeah, agreed. And this next one is one that doesn't have a working title because it's one of the two that were actually written in the studio. This one gets a little wild here with uh, track seven, Malpractice. So believe it or not, uh, with <laughs> within all that madness, there is a actually a very uh, defined sample of uh, string quartet number no. eight from the Russian composer Dmitry Shostakovich. So what do you think of that, Nub? Huh? That's pretty good, eh? I knew that. You're not telling me anything I didn't know. Yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure I didn't pronounce that right. Doesn't matter. Don't care. Um, it's a little wild for me, uh, and. Uh, you know, I, I kind of get the sort of madness element of it, but eh, not sure about this one. What do you think? I think, you know, Mike, Mike Patton, who really was the mastermind behind this song, is very into film soundtracks. You know, he talks about that during the, I, everyone needs to watch those Mike Patton interviews because it's so revealing, but he talks about how <laughs> in 1992, you know, he wasn't excited about music. And when he goes to the record store, all he does is end up in the, soundtracks aisle he strikes it's me it's so as some, funny like like you said earlier it's some intern for and and she's just pressing him so hard to to get his thoughts on current music and he, he just he just can't do it that's you know, not part did. of it yeah <laughs> and exactly you could tell it was for one of these like the year in 1992 yeah. music like specials yeah. like previewing the year and he yeah he wanted no part of it and uh he, he strikes me as somebody that was really into like Morricone, you know, film music um, in, in some of the famous film soundtrack composers of back in the day. I, I'm, I'm sure he's fascinated by some of that world. And to me, that's what's coming out here. It's not, you know, one might they go, oh, this is their like 
speed metal song or something. No, not really. I'm not hearing Slayer in it. I'm hearing more of a theatrical sort of deal here. So yeah, it, it it's a little bit of a Passover track for me, but uh, you know, it, it's Patton being Patton and, and that's always going to be interesting as we've covered. This next one is uh, very influenced by Roddy Bottom, some of the best keyboard work on the record. This is a, a very um, well-liked track by many Faith No More fans, Kindergarten. You know, you mentioned it earlier and it it was a great call and I think it's worth really highlighting is Gould's bass playing. And obviously on a track like this, it really sticks out, but man, he, he brings the heat on this record, just track in and track out. He seems like every song he's got a moment, you know, where, whether it's that bass pop or whether it's that kind of funk style thing that he can do where he just delivers a really important part to each song. And that kind of highlighted one of those uh, with kindergarten, but I think it's a cool track. I think it's one that wasn't trying to be anything that it's not, but kind of pieced together uh, some really good keyboard layers with some great bass work and, you know, not trying to be catchy or anything, but definitely a pretty straightforward um, to the point track that I, I think is pretty meaningful on this one. And Jim Martin's grinding quite a bit here too. And he actually gets a, a songwriting credit for the music on this one. So, you know, that part that he's playing, clearly there's some inventiveness there as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a riff that they did some neat things with. And yeah, this one does seem to hold quite an important place within Faith No More fans. So yeah, Kindergarten's good. It's a nice second half of the album track for sure. Yeah. One that always came off really nicely live. That one, uh, the working title was F sharp. This one, the working title is actually a line from the song, I Swallow. This is track nine, Be Aggressive. Now, there are two songs on this album that I just really wish weren't on it. And this is one of them. I, I don't like it um, to the point where it damn near flipped through it. You know, I know there's some tongue in cheek going on here and there's some big time kind of innuendo with the lyrics. And it seems like maybe they were trying to have a little bit of fun uh, with it, but I, I don't think it lands. And I think it's a little, too scattered and too goofy to be on a record like this. I really wish this song wasn't on it. Am I slamming it too hard nub or what do you think? No, I far and away my least favorite song on the album. The only thing I love about this song is the title. And this is a album of really cool song titles. You know, just look through the track listing and it's just got, I don't know. There's something about the song titles. And again, it goes with the the sleeve and the, 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 you know, the album name. It's just like the whole package is cool, but this song is such a disappointment. You know, first of all, the, the hook in it, this cheerleader thing is extremely annoying. The subject matter is, it's just kind of, you know, <laughs> a little icky, if you will. It's pretty stupid. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, it's a song that 
should have had great potential in the second half of the album to tie two really outstanding moments together. And it, and it fails to do that. But thankfully you, you get, you know, um, terrific redemption with what follows. So thank <laughs> yeah. you for that. Faith no more. <laughs> yeah. You, you, now I've always wondered is, is this next one that good of a song or is it just because it comes after be aggressive and it just sounds that much better? It's one of those, you know, we've talked a lot about relief songs, you know, where it, it's like they're, it, they come off triple as good as they probably really are based on what precedes it. But Nah, you listen to this one as a standalone, no matter what's before it, and it is one hell of a song. This is a small victory. I mean, that's just sweet. The, the working title is uh, Japanese. Obviously, there's a bit of a kind of, a, you know, oriental music kind of feel to this uh, in a very cool way. Great little chorus there. I mean, that is a really, really nice hook and a really, really nice melody um, sung extremely well and harmonized extremely well by Patton. Um, so, again, I don't I don't know if it's. Uh, if if we think it's better than it is because of be aggressive, uh, but I, I think a small victory on its own, no matter what, is uh, is one hell of a track. Do you agree? I do. Yeah, I think it, I think it's just that good. I don't, I don't think it's. I mean, help it boosts it a little bit that it comes after this dufferoo, but you know, amazing line. Do 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 do. I mean, it's 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 almost got a classical feel to it, and like you said, it's you know the, the working title reveals some of the inspiration there. But Patton's really on it here. You know, the, the work he's doing vocally on the chorus is dynamic and shows, you know, just the, the various things that guy can do with his throat, which is sort of inhuman. But the thing I like about A Small Victory, it's the one song on the album, truly, even more than Midlife Crisis, where it sounds like the band's kind of working together on mm-hmm. this song. You know, really, yeah. there's a good synergy there. Everything's kind of making sense. And I love the the all over the place aspect of some of these tracks, you know, we've talked about it a lot, but a small victory, there's a simplicity to it that it was necessary and uh, it hit single for sure. I mean, it should have been a bigger hit. I think the remix actually did better than the, the real song. Um, but the reality is that it, it sequenced well, it came at a good place, but even by itself, this song probably should have been a larger hit, you know, it would have sounded really good on the radio with kind of that lead guitar piece and, everyone's kind of doing their thing in a really cohesive way on this track. It just, it, it, it oozes the band actually working together. And you can't say that about most of the songs on this album. You know? <laughs> it's a really good point. Really well said. I think, uh, you know, that, that, um, that cohesiveness certainly comes through in a track like that. It seems like they knew exactly where they wanted to go with it and they just went there, you know, and they didn't worry about it sounding too commercial or too this or too that they just went for it. And it's a hell of a song. I think you also made a really good call on these song titles. Um, they're very interesting and it's the type of album track listing where you look at it and you want to know more, right? This next one is probably the most interesting song title on the whole thing. This is called crack Hitler. Uh, 
so you know that I said from the onset there were two songs that I wish weren't on here. This is the other one. Um, so you know, there's 13 tracks on it, and um, you know, this would be the second of two that I think we could have gone without. It's not terrible, but it's also kind of directionless. Um, I think it lacks uh, dynamics. It's kind of just this pumping bass line and these keyboards going and Patton just kind of carrying on and on. I mean, I don't, I don't think it really goes anywhere. So, you know, it's, I think there were a couple times on this record where they maybe came up with something that offered a cool groove or a cool beat. And they just really, uh, to your point about a small victory, they, they really weren't able to develop that cohesiveness. This song sounds like, a bunch of guys that are just doing the, it's like almost like they're siloed. They're kind of all doing their own thing and expected it to kind of come together and work somehow. And it didn't. So oh, you it, mean, it sounds like the red hot chili peppers. Yeah. There you exactly. go. You're <laughs> describing the red hot chili peppers. Yeah. It actually, yeah. it actually does sound that way in a lot of ways as cohesive as the previous track was to your very good point. I think this one completely unravels in that, in that way. It, it's tracks like this that led to the dreaded, Red Hat Chili Peppers comparisons, which are the, like the worst comparisons ever. There's such little, you know, the Venn diagram is not strong in the middle. If you compare the Red Hat Chili Peppers and Faith No More, it really is not. Um, but what it gave us, the, the years of this, remember this feud between Mike Patton and Anthony Kiedis? And I don't know if you remember this, but sometime in the late 90s, I want to say it was 1999, Mr. Bungle did a show in Detroit where Mr. Bungle played the show as the red hot chili peppers. And it was this big mockery of the chili peppers because <laughs> oh, really? Patton hated them so much. And so literally Mr. Bungle like dressed up as the chili peppers and they came out and played all these like shit versions <laughs> of chili pepper songs. <laughs> That's funny. It's there's clips of it online. It's actually kind of a notorious thing. Cause you know, it was this well-planned out huge dig at the red hot chili peppers right around the time when, the Chili Peppers were releasing Californication and Mr. Bungle was releasing California, which is, you know, kind of that, that heralded Mr. Bungle album. And so they, they took this big shot at him, but a lot of that came back to the real thing in Angel Dust. There was this big Chili Peppers thing and, they, and it's ridiculous, but songs like this did fuel that because it's as sort of, I'm not a huge Chili Peppers fan, just to be, be frank with everybody. And it has that kind of like rudderless thing that the chili peppers did like let's just make some funk and everyone play their own thing and no uh no kind of you know synergy between the guys and and the other thing too that's interesting about that t is that the feud actually started because this is so 90s but anthony kiedis thought that in the epic music video do you remember the epic music video it was like there's like water coming down and patents yeah doing a very yeah. 90s sort of thing right but this is great dude Anthony Kiedis thought that Patton was stealing his dance moves. It's <laughs> <laughs> so freaking Anthony Kiedis. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. It's so like, that's what started the feud. And so that's funny, but, but songs like crack Hitler didn't help the cause, you know, it did corner fate no more t- to those that didn't go deep enough into this sort of funk rock thing. And it, it, it's, yeah, it's not a good song, it, it, you know, next for sure. The working title of that was Action Adventure. Kind of a funny working title. I actually like the working title better than the real title. Uh, and uh, in speaking of crazy titles, we get to track 12, the second to last uh, track on Angel Dust. And this is called 
Jizzlobber. Now, this one, for sure, um, both, you know, from the writing credits and from kind of the accounts of what happened in the studio, you know, uh, uh, Big Jim was all over this one. I, I'm sure he composed most of the song. He certainly uh, gets one of his featured writing credits for this. And you can tell it's got a little bit of that sort of doomy guitar driven thing that he probably wanted more of. Um, it, it's a, it's a good track in that it's something that does have a little bit more of a sort of doom vibe to it. Um, there is good guitar work. I think it's a little long, um, but you know, it's really kind of the, the last track on the record, true track on the album before the instrumental cover. And, you know, I think it's pretty good. I think it kind of wraps up in a way that's unique, in a way that's a little dreary, which makes sense and kind of fits with the overall vibe of the record. I think if you closed it with something that was a little too upbeat, it would be a bit artificial. So all in all, I think it's a pretty good way to close, maybe a little long, but uh, Nubs, I'm particularly interested in this one. What do you think of the closer? This actually sounds a lot like jim martin's solo album from 1997 so oh does it's the it? okay. same vibe yeah a lot of ringing chords and again that that dark kind of guitar work uh i think it's cool i think it's cool just because it's kind of his moment to to be creative and you know the band gave him that opportunity you know i mean it made the album albeit it's kind of buried at the bottom but yeah i think it i think it winds the album to a close in a certainly in an interesting way and and it's kind of big jim's like swan song you know before he went on to not such big other things i mean he kind of left and did a solo album then fell off the face of the earth played in small bands uh clearly he made enough money in faith no more where he didn't really need to get back in anything commercial again and i don't know how much he even still plays guitar it sounds like maybe he went on to have interest in other things but well, actually, it's funny you mentioned that, that what, what he has become kind of known for, because um, it sounds like he doesn't really play music much anymore. Um, I didn't even know this existed, but he, he's a championship uh, pumpkin grower. He actually grows pumpkins competitively and is apparently quite good at it. So there you go. I mean, that's what that's wow. what Jim Martin's up to. Yeah, You can compete uh, with anything these days, eh? I... Didn't know it was a thing. Apparently it's a thing and apparently he's good at it. So nice. Well, that's good. I'm just glad he's good at whatever he's doing. Cause he, yeah. he certainly was a hell of a guitarist. That's well, for sure. anything worth doing is worth doing. Right. right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. All right. Let's close this thing up. This is a cover of the theme to midnight cowboy faith. No more style. You know, at this point, I mean, why not pull out the accordion? Why not <laughs> record a, you know, famous theme from a 60s movie? I mean, just, you know, why the hell not? It's Faith No More Angel Dust. It's uh it's a clever, cool, unexpected, I think, way to kind of wrap it up and 
few bands could probably pull something like that off, but I, I think they do here on the final track of Angel Dust. It's an album for the CD age. You know, it's almost an hour long. And so, you know, if, if they had the constrictions of vinyl or, or some of the other formats that you might be looking at, then, you know, you, you might have a little different situation at the close of the album. You might have a tighter album. I mean, some of the great albums of the 90s, you know, were great because they were originally, you know, pressed onto CD and there was more time and more opportunities. But this album is, it's long. I mean, if you're going to list this top to bottom, it's a full hour. So yeah, it, it you know, it, it closes up shop in a way that only Faith No More can. I agree with you. Well, that's a wrap. Uh, 13 tracks. And like you said, uh, uh, certainly a, a decent chunk of time there getting through Angel Dust. but. Uh, Nubs, as all music called it, a bizarro masterpiece. What do you think? Did it matter, buddy? It certainly gave the 90s a good kick in the old junkaroo. You know, so I think it did matter <laughs> for its time. I, I think that it was distinct. It was very individual. And when this album is released in the same, you know, year or two as the Black Album and Count Unto Extinction and some of the other metal type of things that were going on, but also around the time of blood sugar, sex magic. And, you know, the nineties, the early nineties was just unbelievably eclectic and all over the map. So it it mattered in 1992. It did. It was so distinct. Does it matter now? Eh, I, I don't know that the eclecticism of this album is quite as shocking in 2021 as it was in 1992. And so in that way, it probably hasn't aged as well. But at its time, I would say it mattered very much so just because it found its little niche with, within all these different musical worlds. And make no mistake, grunge was dominating at this time. And this is not a grunge album at all, like not even the closest thing to grunge. And so, you know, it's a bunch of really creative guys being really creative. And so in that sense, it mattered for its time. But now I don't know that it holds a place in 2021. This would be a tough sell to get a younger listener to listen to it and enjoy it and appreciate it. It's an easy sell in 1992 to get somebody to enjoy it and appreciate it. You know, I don't know. What, what do you think, T? Does, it, uh, does Angel Dust matter? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really fair, you know, thorough assessment. And it would be interesting to kind of get a feel for how this held up. And, you know, anybody out there that wants to uh, give us their thoughts, you know, please do, Um, you know, on Twitter or, you know, via email or Facebook or wherever you want to, we'd love to know kind of your thoughts on that because it really is an interesting question on this one. You know, um, a a lot of the albums we've done, you kind of know where they stand today. This one's kind of difficult. But I do think at the time it was really important to sort of show that you can have a successful album that really purposefully broadened uh, the expectation at the time and sort of broadened the template at the time, because there was a pretty firm template here in middle of in the middle of 1992 as to what would perform well, what would sell. And these guys were talented enough. They could have done it. I mean, they could have had they could have made an album of 10 midlife crises and a small victories and, you know, probably created one of the like better albums that, you know, would have been a top 40 success (laughs) of the decade. 
they didn't want to do that. You know, this did become a theatrical project. This did become an artistic project. And at that time, it was probably pretty important, you know, for a band to come out and do that as things were, as everyone was trying to figure out how to be Pearl Jam or how to be Nirvana or how to be Alice in Chains. These guys kind of said, we're not going to be any of those things. We're going to be us and we're going to be unique and we're going to, it's not like a Radiohead Kid A. I love how that's become like the the standard for badness, you know, for, for yeah. us. <laughs> but it's, it's the two like, twins in an album basement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not but like not a, Kid B. Not Kid B now. No, Kid B is great. It's not like a Radiohead Kid A thing where it's artificially different or intentionally unique or or in a calculated way trying to be eccentric. It's it's artistic. It's 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 expressive and it's adventurous. And and I think all those things make it important. I'll tell you kind of more personally, this is the first album I can remember that I really wanted people to know that I liked it. You know, and there's something to that. There there are certain records and I hope it doesn't come across as a like, hey, look how cool I am or hey, I want to be hip. But it was one of those albums that I wanted people to know I understood, that I liked, and was part of my collection. That was really important. And quite honestly, to this day, I still love wearing the Angel Dust shirt that I have. Or like I said, I have the poster of the artwork in my basement. It's it's one of those that and there's a couple handfuls of albums that kind of fit under this category, but it's one that, you know, I still to an extent to this day want people to know that it's one that I uh, really, really like, really, really appreciate, and in many ways kind of understand. So, it's a street cred album. There's no yeah. shame in that admission. You know, if you're, if you're at a show and you're waiting for the next band and you're talking to people, you know, there's a bunch of albums out there that you can reference that you know you could find common ground with people but angel dust is one of those where if you bring it up and somebody appreciates it as much as you do you're like immediately best friends you know you're going to the bar and buying each other a drink because it's a taste-making album it is and it's a if there's any status to this record it's that if you like it and understand and appreciate it you're at a certain taste level and so i I could totally see where you're at on that team we've all got our albums like that i think I can't wait to go to a bar and buy you a drink, buddy. Oh, man. I'll tell you what, maybe even two. Yeah, maybe two. We'll see. Well, let's find out how much you really like and appreciate it. Nub, uh, the final cut on Angel Dust. Is it on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust? Or is it oh, in the first sale pen? What do you got, bud? I've got a collecting dust. It's an album that you should own, and, and uh, I think it's a quintessential part of the 90s. But top to bottom, it's not the easiest listen in the world. You know, you mentioned the first three tracks. You're thinking it's kind of like what we talked about last episode with A Flock of Seagulls. I mean, you get to the first couple of tracks, you're like, this is going to be the greatest album ever. And then it turns out to not be the greatest album ever. And it's got its moments, a small victory. Top to bottom, that full listen, that's kind of what we look at here at Two Twins in an Album. You know, If you're going to put something on the turntable, you got to really think about track one to the last track and everything in between. Doesn't have to be perfect, but it's got to be all songs that you look forward to. And there's too many moments on this thing where they just get a little bit too experimental at times. That's what gives Angel Dust its charm, right? That's what gives this album its credibility. 
But for me personally, it's not one that is a top to bottom listen to frequently. In fact, I find myself just choosing those four and five songs and having them on playlists and things like that more than listening to the record. So it's collecting dust, but it's the furthest thing away from a for sale bin. I think it's a really important part of a 90s collection, but just not one that I, in all honesty, listen to top to bottom. All right, T, you know, this is the interesting one. Where do you got it, T? Where's your uh, final cut for <laughs> I've got it in the collection. And, um, and you've made some great points tonight. And one of them is that it's as much about the collective experience of the album as it is just the songs. Uh, the cover, the the approach, the dichotomy, the creativeness, and what it sort of stood for at a time where you could have easily gone right for the template and right for the formula. And for that, I give it tons of respect. And this needs to be in your collection. Now, why is it not on the turntable? Basically because of two songs. I mean, if Be Aggressive and Crack Hitler get dropped from this, you got an 11-track album that's really efficient. I'm probably putting this on the turntable because of the layering, the production, the sound. There's a couple of absolutely outstanding tracks. It's pretty close for me to getting to that level. But when you've got two throwaway tracks and and plus, I think it's a little long, you know, and I know and, and you made a good point on this is the era of the CD and you're trying to pack as much as you can so you can sell it for $14.99 and all that kind of stuff. It, it, you know, it's understandable, but too too many tracks a little too long for my liking and that's what keeps it from being on the turntable for me but i think it's a it's an important record during an important time making an important statement and one that you should have in the collection so it's a pretty firm in the collection for me all right now well hey let's uh cool down let's close it up let's simmer down a little bit in the only way we know how with our good pal Dolores. What's in your head, buddy? Three songs. What do you got, Nub? Yeah, Dolores doing her best red hot chili peppers impression there, you know. <laughs> Just stutter your words and you'll be really famous and you know sell a lot of albums. So in my head to kick off is uh you just, we talked about too long. Well, here's a long track that never feels that long. And that is the title track from the album Marquee Moon by Television, the 1977, you know, kind of post-punk classic. And uh, Marquee Moon's got that endless Tom Verlaine guitar solo that just goes on and on and on and on. And on, but I still love it. And, yeah. you know, just this really kind of epic thing that came from the punk scene, but really felt more like a prog song and very, very cool stuff. Second would be uh, Sunny Day Real Estate's In Circles, which is off the Diary album. And I, that's a, the one Sunny Day album that I really never got into that much, amazingly enough, because that's the one that everybody, you know, just slobbers over all the time. So I, it, it's given me a chance to rediscover it and, and appreciate a lot of it. And In Circles was really the most famous song uh, on that album. And, and it's, a, it's a quality single from the, from sunny day. And, you know, obviously, and in my opinion, you know, clearly one of the best bands that no longer exists, but would be sunny day, real estate. Third in my head would be, you know, a song that I think everybody in this universe would like, and that is new attitude by Patty LaBelle. You know, one of the 
Yeah, sure. Right? I mean, You're going like in my direction now. I like it. Yeah. Well, is, that know, from, just, uh, is that from Beverly Hills Cop? Isn't, isn't that one, one of those? It certainly is. Yeah. You just, you know, running time, running gold, <laughs> running five, I just show my phone on the battery. You know, dun, it's dun, like, dun, dun, yeah. yeah. Patty's just like dun, killing dun, it too. Dun, like go to YouTube and I think she's performing it on, I think it's a TV show. It wasn't Soul Train. Maybe it was Soul Train, but lip sync. Oh yeah. yeah. And Patty's just like destroying it. Just crushing <laughs> it, you know? Really so Yeah. It, new attitude by Patty LaBelle. Love it. All right, T. Answer Dolores's call here. What, uh, what is in your head? Very nice. I like your, I like your trio there. Uh, the first for me is a song called In My Life. And this is by the uh, Worldwide Message Tribe. And uh, it's a Christian, uh, you know, dance techno project from the uh, early 90s. But uh, uh, In My Life is actually a really awesome song. It's kind of like one of my favorite jams ever, as strange as that all sounds. But uh, yeah, the Worldwide Message Tribe, some good stuff there. Uh, the second is uh, by a band called Toto that we've talked about here just a couple of times. And uh, this is English Eyes. Uh, which is a little bit more of a deep cut, but uh, one of those songs that the entire band really contributed on. I think it's a Luca third tune at its core, but both Percaros get a writing credit and it's a really good vocal from uh, Bobby Kimball. So um, those guys really killing it there. And uh, the third is a little song by spiritualized, but had to offer a writing credit to the great JJ Kale. And this is Run, which is off of Laser Guided Melodies, which obviously lifts that uh, They Call Me the Breeze uh, vocal melody uh, during the verses. But Spiritualized Run is a great song from this era that we discussed tonight. And uh, but a really cool jam that never gets old for me. Nub, enjoyed revisiting 1990 Duh with you and uh, this album that certainly offers no shortage of uh, analysis and critique and and sort of a lot of things to pull apart uh really enjoyed talking through it with you tonight look I, my biggest hope is that um after the show's over and once you do the editing just please don't fire me via fax okay if you're gonna fire me from the <laughs> podcast just call me and tell me i don't want to be fired uh, by fax no way i'm doing the fact i'm in fact i'm gonna go i'm gonna go find and buy a fax machine like at the you know, used resale shop or something just so I can fax you your firing letter. Yeah. I, I actually, I've changed my tune completely. I desperately want to get fired by fax. Please yeah, do it. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's yeah. one of those things we should all go through at least once. Uh, hey, thanks a lot, Nub. And uh, boy, that's a wrap on episode, believe it or not, 35. Here on Two Twins and an album we will see you next week take care two twins well that's about it that's all we have i hope it wasn't too disappointing we will see you on tour until then take it easy